You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week, my guest is Bruce Katz. He's the inaugural Centennial Scholar at the Brookings Institution. Many of you know his work. It focuses on the challenges and opportunities of global urbanization. He founded the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program back in 1996, and for 20 years was its vice president and co-director. He's put together two books, the first, The Metropolitan Revolution, and his latest, which is co-authored with Jeremy Nowak, is The New Localism, How Cities Can Thrive in the Age of Populism. Bruce, I've, I've followed your work, obviously, for a long time, and it's a thrill to talk to you. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this. I want to start out just real simple. I read the book. Uh, it was very challenging. I, I enjoyed it. I think we have a lot of commonality, and I'd, I'd like to explore some of those. But let's start out just getting people caught up. What do you mean when you say the new localism? So I think what's emerged, particularly in the United States, but really in cities across the world, is a new philosophy and practice of problem solving. You know, choose your favorite problem that we're facing. Is it the competitiveness of your city, inclusive growth, demographic transformation, climate change? Increasingly, we're seeing problem solving happen bottom up by cities, counties, rather than top down through networks of public, private, civic, university, labor, and others, rather than exclusively government. Solutions tend to be interdisciplinary, cross-sectoral, rather than compartmentalized and bureaucratic, you know, only the Department of Transportation or only the Department of Education. And finally, we're seeing ideas, innovation, and capital move fairly rapidly in a bottom-up world across global circuits of uh, innovation capital. So an idea invented in one city or a practice invented in another city gets adapted and adopted relatively fast. That's the new localism. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm very comfortable with the idea that, you know, power to the competent, in a sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> you write like power is shifting to the problem solvers. How is that different than the way we've tried to solve problems in the past? And, and, and why do you think it's an important shift we need to make? Well, I think it's, it's an absolutely critical shift. You know, we had a mid-20th century vision of how to solve the hard problems in our societies. And not just in the United States, but in many of our mature economies. You know, you'd have a central government or a national government. You'd have these agencies with, quote-unquote, experts that had great specialized knowledge. Again, like a Department of Transportation or a Department of the Environment. And then they would try to crack at hard challenges given their specialized knowledge through, you know, essentially rigid, formalized bureaucracies. And that did work for some things. I mean, you know, U.S. Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, a lot of stuff got done through those agencies. But increasingly, we see challenges in the world that particularly are faced by cities and by counties as multidimensional challenges. You know, the solutions are not really about having one bureaucracy with specialized knowledge be the begin-all and end-all of the solution. You know, before you even get to this period of angry populism, and before you even get 
to partisan divisions and ideological polarization. And what we're focusing on is on the structural nature of problem solving in the 21st century, needing multiple sectors, multiple disciplines, so that you could actually get the solution right and get it sustained over time. That's a different world. It's a horizontal world rather than a vertical world. It felt like as I read the book that you were really describing something that was going on right now, which to me felt like simply modernization. I'm from Minnesota. We've got 3M. 3M was in the 1950s and 60s, a very hierarchical business. Today, it's a very kind of flat business structure. And you know, if you study business management, there's a lot of reasons why that type of approach is more innovative and flexible and in many ways better at problem solving. How much of this is a a modernization and how do we get some of those maybe more reluctant and kind of rigid structures like our governmental structures and some of our institutions and, and corporate, you know, finance kind of things. How do we move some of those along this route of new localization, especially if it means for them giving up some power? I think we lived in a networked economy and a networked society. And just take the innovative economy, for example. There was this notion that we were waiting for the genius in the garage, like Steve Jobs or something, to invent the next big technological breakthrough. Actually, most technological breakthroughs happen through collaborative ecosystems of universities and faculty and students and entrepreneurs, startups, scale-ups, investors, mature companies. And solutions sort of travel the same way. They require networks because the challenges of, in a modern society are, are complex. And therefore, each of our disciplines is really not adequate to solve the problem. I and mean, take traffic congestion. You know, the traffic engineers try to solve the problem by widening our roads. It just made the problem worse. You know, but once you bring the housing community in or land users, zoning or economic development you know, or, or technological you know, innovation, you begin to really get a much broader sort of spectrum of solutions. So this is the world in which we live. And frankly, cities have become revalued because a networked economy and a networked society and network solutions craves proximity. It craves density. It wants different sectors, people with different skills to be close to each other so they can share ideas and and ultimately crack the code. I think the mid-20th century was, was a, a certain kind of economy, a certain kind of society, and now we're just in a, in a completely different world. And again, these are structural shifts, not cyclical realities. I know you have studied a lot the housing issues of the last 100 years and are very familiar with the debates over affordable housing and home ownership in this country. I'd like to use that as a platform for kind of diving deeper into this. As we went through the Great Depression and immediately after World War II, we were trying to solve a set of problems, and we tried to solve them through centralization. Fannie Freddie, the FHA, suburbanization. Are the problems we're dealing with today and the call for a new localism, do we read that as that we picked the wrong approach before? We shouldn't have centralized? Or do we... Look at it more as, you know, things are different now and we have to respond to them differently. How do we view the past through this new lens? I was chief of staff at HUD under Clinton and worked for Henry Cisneros, um, who, by the way, was one of the most inspiring people I've ever met in my life. I think this is partly a question of balance. 
and getting the balance right between what a national government does or what states do, um, which are governments. That's what they are. They're not networks. And what cities and counties and metropolitan areas do. I think that's really the question. I think we overly centralized and nationalized housing policy in the mid to late 20th century as a, as a response to the depression. You know, other countries had a more distributed approach. If you go to Germany, a really mature industrial economy, they don't have the same nationalization of housing policy. It's, it's really more distributed across the national government states and, and, and cities. In a way, what we're doing now in the U.S. is we're beginning to rebalance and reassign responsibilities across different levels so that ultimately we can solve these hard issues around affordability. You know, so it may be ultimately what we need to do is we need to be looking to Hamburg or we need to be looking to other European cities that have had more power and more responsibility for dealing with the housing crisis for a longer period of time. Um, that's where we may begin to see solution sets that are, you know, have the potential to really grapple with the challenge. So we over-nationalized housing policy in the U.S., and now I think we're returning to a balance, and it means that cities and counties will have to step up, use land use and zoning in different ways, you know, raise capital in different ways, sort of reduce the cost of building and preserving housing in different ways. I mean, I think we're finally getting to a full solution. And housing is intensely local, so that's where it should have been all, all along. I want to quote from your book. You write, the populism that defined the 2016 presidential election shares much of its origins with new localism. It is rooted in the long economic restructuring and social transition that has exacerbated national income inequality and rattled the meaning of national identity. I'd like to give you a chance to elaborate on that, and I'd like you to specifically talk about how new localism is different than just sheer populism. Why it's a, it's a different response, but maybe to the same set of stimulus or concerns that are being raised. Well, I'm glad you raised that because I do think populism and new localism sort of emerge from real you know, market and cultural dynamics that have led to deep economic insecurity along large portions of the citizenry population and cultural anxiety associated with demographic change. And populism responds to this primarily by exploiting grievances. What we have are the rise of demagogues, whether it's Farage and Brexit in Britain or whether it's Trump in the United States. These, these are folks who are exploiting grievances. Uh, new localism is about solving problems. It's affirmative. It's pragmatic. It's curious. It's iterative. And when it comes to demographic transformation, it's the opposite of xenophobic. It embraces diversity and it embraces inclusion. We need to understand that there are structural dynamics in the economy and society that are not working for many people and leaving many people and many places behind. And there is a deep frustration with the inadequacy of our 20th century governmental systems, higher levels of government for the most part, to resolve these issues, whether it's here or whether it's in Britain or other parts of Europe or other parts of the world. So we were very intentional about putting localism and populism in the title of this book. 
they they counterpose there and they are juxtaposed. And we we think there is a, a battle, frankly, between those who will exploit anxiety and those who will just roll up their sleeves, solve problems. We hope the solving problem faction wins. How do you think this applies to smaller towns and rural areas? A lot of the dialogue that, that you have at, at Brookings, and, and I know that urbanists in general across the, the world are having right now, is on the ascendancy of cities. But a lot of that populism comes from more rural areas. How do you think this mindset applies in those places? I think there's several ways it applies. First of all, half of people who live in areas that are defined as rural for density and other criteria live in metropolitan America because we've seen such a level of sprawl and decentralization that many of our rural counties and rural towns are now in the envelope of metropolitan areas. And they are commuter zones. They're commuter origins for workers going back into the exurbs or middle suburbs or even the city to do their jobs. So there is a level of connectivity between the core city and the core county, mature suburbs and exurbs out to rural areas that frankly, I think are going to need a different narrative and a different group of intermediaries to ensure that the prosperity of the core can radiate out to the periphery. The other thing, though, is we think a lot of the principles of urban regeneration apply to rural towns and rural counties because, you know, the starting point of new localism really was around placemaking. How do you create a quality place? How do you create hubs and gathering spaces that are vibrant and vital and authentic and really build community? I mean, generally speaking, any place can do that. Um, Projects for public spaces. There are many organizations that I think do this quite well. And then how do you make your school and your skills system the best that can be? So even if you've lost some of your economic function, you can still work on placemaking and you can still work on talent preparation and become a place that has an offer for investors and companies and for, and for residents. So I think those are the two dimensions of the urban-rural rift. I mean, you know, the urban-rural rift in America is not just about Manhattan versus, you know, the farmland. It's really about the core of cities and the periphery of metropolitan areas. We can solve that from the bottom up. I feel like a lot of our work in this particular vein in specific overlaps. I find myself when I read the book in broad agreement with you, I want to give you a few of the pushbacks that I get often, and I want to see how you would respond to them with this idea of new localism. The first one is that oftentimes when I talk about localizing things, the pushback is, Chuck, you're just empowering oppression. A lot of times when people think local, they don't think uh, people solving problems. They think the good old boys network getting together and enacting a new round of, of Jim Crow legislation. What would you say to the people who are very concerned about civil rights, social justice, and maybe the parochial nature of localized systems that would be different than kind of broader national systems? We really need to maintain a national government that maintains a platform of civil rights and enforces civil rights. I mean, so uh, and that's why we have national governments. They may not always step up to the plate and do their job, but that's a critical role for them. So nothing we're saying diminishes how critical we have, you know, the critical role of a national government around civil rights and 
safety net and you know redistributive policies and all the rest of that. I don't associate localism with parochialism. Most of the places that I work in today are changing demographically rapidly. And most of the leaders, you know, that I work with, you know, whether they're in government or private sector, philanthropy, universities, labor, environmental, in many ways look like the communities in which they're located. So I think leadership is becoming very diverse across race, ethnicity, class, experience. And that's good because that enables us to crowdsource problem solving and make sure that problems are more reflective of the communities that we're serving. So we don't live in the 1950s anymore. And we need to look forward and not look back. America's changing very, very fast. That's one of our strengths demographically. I think we really should be holding up examples and models and norms of the new kind of leadership structures that are emerging in the U.S. and the new kind of institutional vehicles that leaders are using to get stuff done and not have the sort of the past inhibit or constrain us. It should inform us, but it shouldn't stop us from building a new America. Let me give you another line of critique. You had mentioned earlier the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, and I would agree with you that those were major turning points and in many ways successes. But over time, there's been a lot of calcification of some of those bureaucracies that go along with it. And a lot of places are calling for more flexibility to do things that they think are even better from an environmental standpoint. The pushback that I get a lot of times when we talk about changing responsibility for environmental regulation, environmental enforcement, is that local governments will simply shortchange the neighboring community. There's too many incentives at the local level to overlook the environment for short-term gain. In an environmental vein, some of these concerns about a localist kind of centric strategy, how would you respond to that? I think these are valid concerns, but you know, I would look towards the climate change movement and how much cities are in the vanguard of that movement. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you want to lower carbon emissions in the world, what you're primarily talking about is the energy sector, the building sector, and the transport sector. Well, where do responsibilities lie for changing the the pattern of development and growth so that we can radically reduce carbon emissions? Well, a lot of that lies at the local level. There may be national standards and national rules that are created, but ultimately the hard work is happening locally. So cities have to be in the lead here. Um, They're the engines of national economies, And they really are the centers of global trade and investment. And many of the challenges that we face in the world don't just disproportionately rest in these aggregated places, but they can be resolved by different kinds of transactions and and, and different kinds of modes of operation. So, you know, we don't live in a world where someone sitting in Washington, D.C. or in the national capitals of Europe or elsewhere can just for the most part, pass a rule or pass a bill and have problem solved, done, move on. I think we live in a world that requires constant, continuous, iterative innovation across sectors and disciplines to deal with the hard issues. And that's what we're identifying in this book. Those are the stories we're telling, essentially. And we always have to protect against 
some of the concerns that have been raised. But the world in which we live demands and rewards bottom-up solutions. Do you feel like this is a place where our messed up left of center dialogue and our messed up right of center dialogue can actually find something they could agree on? Is this a place of consensus for us? I hope so. I mean, you know, look, the, the right of center fetishizes markets and the left of center fetishizes government. And at the end of the day, most of the hard solutions in the world are going to be public-private or private-public or private-civic. We need to get beyond we're a really antiquated, anachronistic perspectives of the world that I think permeate our societies. And so we're looking for different models. That's why we spend so much time focusing on Copenhagen, which is a publicly owned, privately driven corporate model where all the land and buildings that are owned by the government are transferred to this corporation. And over the last 30 years, they've been able to not just regenerate the core of Copenhagen, anyone who goes there, obviously understands the incredible accomplishment of bringing back the harbor to vibrant life, but then use the revenues from that regeneration to build a 21st century transit system. Just imagine that. You're a 21st century subway system built without a dollar of taxes, but built from the revenue from land sales and land leases. New York City could do that. They have a hundred and $111 billion price tag to retrofit their subways, and they're not getting the value of real estate appreciation. Is that a right-wing solution, conservative solution, a liberal solution? No, it's a, it's a hybrid. And we've got to be more comfortable now with these hybrid public-private, private-public solutions and new kinds of institutions that are quintessentially 21st century. I've got one last critique I want you to respond to. Uh, and it has to deal with just the messiness of local kind of action. You know, whenever people work locally, it's messy, it's chaotic. And I was thinking, as I read your book, when we went through 9-11, all of a sudden society had this tension and we just walked away from essentially all the concerns we had about, you know, Big Brother and a security state. Things that a decade earlier would have been unimaginable, we just went out and did. I've worked for years at the local level, and I see when cities are confronted with hard choices, difficult problems, things that force them to essentially work through unsolvable things, something where someone's going to get what they want and someone's not going to. And oftentimes, the solution at the local level is to turn to Big Brother, the proverbial like rich uncle that can come in and, and smooth things over and make things work. How do we essentially resist the notion to solve all the problems, even when they get messy and complicated at the local level? How do we kind of force, as part of the new localism, people to actually have to work through these things and not turn around and ask someone else? Well, listen, I think our stories, you know, Copenhagen is one story, but we tell the story of Pittsburgh and its recovery from the steel collapse um, in the late 1970s, or Indianapolis, and their ability to build a vibrant and prosperous metropolis, you know, with uh, very intense and very formal relationships between corporations, philanthropies, universities, the public sector, neighborhoods. You know, we spend a lot of time in our universities studying public administration. We spend a lot of time in our universities studying public policy, the national government the state government. What we're saying in this book is the reality of problem solving today is happening through networks. 
that many times don't speak the same language and many times you know these institutions and leaders don't have the same objectives but the solutions are going to come from them collaborating to compete collaborating to problem solve it is messy and it is complicated but there are so many assets that we have in our cities because they are networks and not governments. And now we've got to perfect the mechanics of collaboration. And we have to perfect this practice of problem solving. So I think at the end of the day, if we can just rid ourselves of what we were taught, you know, in elementary school, that we live in a hierarchical society and we're waiting for the bill to pass Capitol Hill and we're waiting for the cavalry to come. We have agency at the local level. We have more wealth and capacity than we know when we really do pull together these different sectors and a more diverse leadership structure. So this is an act of optimism, this book. I mean, I have to say, I mean, you know, Jeremy and I, you know, we respect the challenges. We understand the problems, you know, but we fundamentally believe that we have more power than we understand, and we have more wealth than we understand to deploy at the local, county, and metropolitan level. And we do have to rid ourselves of some of this 20th century thinking that we're just waiting for the right you know, candidate to win the presidency or win the governorship. And that, I think, is a fool's errand. Yes, there will be changes. But at the end of the day, long-term, sustained, transformative change has to happen locally. Bruce, I feel like this is a really positive vision of the future, even though a lot of people, I think, would find it challenging. Did the book give you some optimism putting it together? I actually ended the book more optimistic than I started. I, I did, too. Because, <laughs> you, know, you know, I knew the Copenhagen story, you know, sort of. I knew the Pittsburgh story, sort of. But then, you know, you know, Jeremy and I started to crowdsource a whole bunch of other stuff from St. Louis and Kansas City, a lot of these are heartland stories. Cincinnati, Abilene, Texas, Erie, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma City. I ended up this book feeling, wow, we have so much opportunity in this country. We have so much capacity. We have so much talent across multiple dimensions. This is an organizing question. It really is an organizing question. How do we organize information? How do we organize people? How do we organize capital? And let's just do it. I mean, I served in the federal government for 10 years. Like Elvis, they have left the building. I'm not waiting for them, and I'm definitely not waiting for many state capitals. I think we, we're going to have to do the hard work from the bottom up, invest in the future, invest in our children, invest in innovation, invest in infrastructure. We can do this. We really can do this. But it's just a different way of thinking about how problems get solved. Bruce Katz is with the Brookings Institution. You can follow him, I think, easiest on Twitter at Bruce underscore Katz, K-A-T-Z. Thanks for taking the time today. It's, it's so nice to talk to you. I, I have followed your work for a long time, and it's quite an honor to chat. So thanks for being on the Strong Towns podcast. Great conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity. And folks, if you read the book, tweet at me or write reviews on Amazon or engage, engage. Uh, because that's the only way we're going to collectively learn. Fantastic. Thanks, Bruce. Take care. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. 
Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.